0: This is Dedicated, a show where people share about what they are dedicated to. It could be a career or a hobby. They will tell you why they are so into it or how they become so good at it. I'm your host Lulu, and making these conversations happen is what I am dedicated to. You can also tell me what you are dedicated to. Today, we're chatting with Jonathan. He is dedicated to scuba diving because it reveals a whole new dimension
1: of our planet. So Jonathan, tell us a little bit about yourself, like who you are and what you do.
2: So welcome everyone first, and thanks uh, for having me. So my name is Jonathan Dektyar and I'm a French guy living in the United States, right now working in high tech, but spending a lot of my free time doing scuba diving, and uh, I guess we'll go over that in the next couple minutes.
1: <laughs> yeah, as Jonathan says, he is a master in scuba diving, and I believe he has already ventured into many places underwater.
2: I'm not sure about the master part, but <laughs> I do it on of <laughs> yeah. diving.
1: Mm. Yeah, so maybe I will just get started by uh, talking about a little bit about my diving experience. I actually only dive once in Hainan, so that is an island province of China. So I went diving with like an instructor and the water was crystal clear and very warm. But after I came out of the water, um, it was freezing cold and I drank a lot of ginger soup to keep my body temperature high. Um, Yeah, and that's all I know about diving. And all the other thing I will be mentioning today come from either YouTube videos or (laughs) Jonathan's Instagram posts.
2: I unfortunately never dove in China. I I wish I I did, but I I heard there's fantastic diving in China, but I've never been doing it. Do you you remember what you you saw in the water?
1: A lot of fish, and they're pretty colorful.
2: So no large animals, right? No dolphins or, or something? Okay, okay.
1: Yeah, I believe it's because I'm only going to the shallow water, so I didn't um get to see much of the ocean. So no big animals.
2: So the thing is in, in in diving most of the time the most interesting things are going to be very close to the surface. And and the reason is that um most of the big animals that you know, like dolphins, like whales and stuff, they, they can't breathe underwater. So they need to come like to the surface every so often. Um, sea lions are the same. And, and so you see a lot of life very, very close to the surface. And also because very close to the surface, you have a lot of light, then the animals are very colorful, right? And if you go deeper, it's more dark. So there's less colors. It's less beautiful. It's a different beauty. <laughs> but, uh, the the, the most like wow that you get when you scuba dive, it's very shallow.
1: Yeah. So that's my experience. And I think even for those who live by the ocean, they only see the views above the water and very few of them actually see the underwater world. So today we'll just follow Jonathan and take a plunge into the underwater world. Yeah. So Jonathan, how did you start diving? Like how old? were you when you first went diving?
2: So if I recall correctly, and I could be off by one year. um, I started to dive, I think in 2005, in the south of France, in a part called Corsica. I was something like 14 or 15 years old. And uh, it was some kind of a summer camp and um i I went diving in a very very beautiful part of france the the water is very blue and it's very very beautiful um unfortunately, I don't have very uh, clear memory of because it's fairly old <laughs> of what I saw in the water but um it it really got me into um uh, the blue world as we say it and um and then I finished high school there was universities and When you're a student, you don't have too much money. So it was a bit difficult to to go diving at that time. And when I finished my PhD, I started diving again because first I was employed. So more money was starting to come back. And I was able to... Also, I was in different areas of the world where it was more easy for me to go diving. Like uh, I was in Israel, where in Israel that you have the Red Sea. You have a lot of like very close to Egypt, uh, which is a very, very famous diving spot, uh, like Dahab, for example. And then I moved to the United States, uh, Northern California with Monterey. And, and of course, all of that allowed me to develop my sensibility to scuba diving and uh, to develop my skills. Um, I also went to Australia diving the, um, uh, the Great Barrier Reef, right? And that that was quite an experience, <laughs> I gotta say. So I, I started diving very very early, but the reality is that I stopped also almost instantly. I was like, oh, I, I had an experience like a couple of like probably about twenty twenty five dives when I was like a teenager, and then I started I started again like ten to twelve years after this, and this time more seriously and going more into uh, the technical aspects of diving.
1: So, do you ever, like, keep track of how many dives you have done so far?
2: (laughs) Oh, uh, I stopped after 800. At at the beginning i was i was counting and you know like you, you start counting out of like oh i'm a, i'm 100 a i'm 200 i'm 300 and uh also there are traditions like in scuba diving like you you make a special dive for your 100 dives or your 1000 dives yeah you know it's kind of like a, a big moment for a diver to arrive at like this um uh kind of points in in your scuba diving career and it's kind of cool uh but at some point you stop logging the dive in the sense of like, oh, I did one more dive. I spent this much time underwater. And... But you start more noting down these things that matters. Like, for example, um, a new dive site. You, you dive in a new place and you're going to note down, oh, I, I've seen that and that was interesting. Uh, for navigation, going to this direction is interesting. Going to that direction is not interesting. So you're going to basically take notes but more to be able to come back (laughs) or like, I've seen this. So next time I need to see this, um, it's going to be more in this direction. Or like if you train for a specific thing, you're going to say, so today I was training and I trained this, this, and this, um, and I need to improve on this, this, and this. But, But it's more going to be note taking for the next time that you dive than really like logging dives. Like a pilot would do, for example. Pilots, they log every single time they go flying. They, they note how how much they went They were from point A to point B. Um, scuba divers do this, but at the beginning. And after, it starts not making so much sense anymore because what is it used for? Like after 2000 dives, really, you don't really need to log your dives. I would say I, I log something that I find a bit like crazy, for example, uh, I would probably log my first uh, 100 meter deep dive, uh, which I'm looking forward to one day, but uh, uh, but because it's, it's a landmark, like it's kind of like something very, very cool, uh, more than because I want to log the dive, really.
1: So how are the dive sites in California? Because I know we have miles of coastline. And I know a lot of people they are going to Monterey Bay or Camel. Do you like the size there?
2: So California is indeed um, one of the hotspots for scuba diving in the United States. So even to be fair to actually the whole coast of um, Pacific coast of the United States, like all the way from Washington state, Um, to Oregon to uh, California is quite amazing, like all the way along the coast. Um, I don't have any experience on Southern California. So, like San Diego, for example, which has a huge styling community, like it's, it's probably even larger than Northern California. Personally, myself, I'm, I'm more used to the Northern California area. So, mostly what we call Monterey Bay. And and the Monterey Bay is a US federally protected marine area. And it's the largest US national marine sanctuary. So it's kind of a national park, but in the ocean. And um, it, you can find things like sea lions, harbor seals, uh, sea otters. We have 27 species of whales. Uh, we have dolphins, more than 10 different species of shark. Uh, like leopard shark, like great whites, like reef sharks, um, have octopuses, crabs, and, uh, something that is very, very beautiful that is called a nudibranch. Um, so it's technically an underwater snail, um, but it's very fluffy and very, very colorful. It's super beautiful. And, 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 and when you go diving and you see these nudibranks, like super, super fancy, it looks like, you know, like a designer, Uh, robe, but animal. (laughs) It's fluffy and colorful, and it's so beautiful.
1: Yeah, I know there are also like kelp forests in Monterey Bay, right? And a lot of people um, go diving just to see that thing.
2: Yeah, so the kelp is a very interesting plant. Um, It can grow from about a meter per day so in 24 hours, the whole plant can grow from of, of about a meter. So that grows like super fast. And um, what it creates, it, it creates underwater forest. And so when you scuba dive, you slalom between like the big trees of kelp. And um, you see the, the rays of light shining through the forest. And you see like these beams going down. And we call them god rays. And they are absolutely fascinating. And, and these kelp forests host a whole sort of like ecosystem of animals that you can see in the water. And uh, so you can find all sorts of fishes, crabs, octopus, sometimes tiny, tiny sharks uh, that are hunting like sharks that are like the size of a handbag. <laughs> they are really, really small. And it's, it's, it's a very fascinating eco, um, ecosystem to, to be diving. Unfortunately, it's, it's, um, it's a ecosystem that is threatened by an invasive species called the, the purple orchids. And, um, they have damaged quite a lot, the the kelp in the area, but it, it's, um, it's quite exceptional to be diving uh, the kelp forests of the coast of California.
1: Yeah. And I, also, I think kelp is a very interesting species because I just knew that people use it to make ice cream. Or
2: well, for everything! For everything, you you have kelp in your toothpaste, most likely. Like there's kelp absolutely everywhere. Um, it's a it's a very very funny plant, and it's 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 in a lot of things. And I couldn't even cite you like all the different things that it's used in because it's really used everywhere. Um, it grows so fast, so it's very easy to. To farm at an industrial scale
1: so what is your favorite creature to see under the water and are they friendly when you're trying to take photos with them
2: uh so i don't really try to take photos with them so i'm not a big like I don't really like carrying a camera underwater, it's fairly bulky and it also disconnects me from the dive, you know, because I have this camera in front of me, it's like going to a concert and spending the whole concert filming the band playing, you know, like instead of enjoying the band, you look at your screen and I am not a big fan of this. Um, I like enjoying and bringing back memories. I, I think my f- my favorite local animal that I would see it's probably the sea lions and friends, so sea lions, harbor seals, and and and, and um, this kind. And the reason is that they are so so funny underwater. They re they we call them sea dogs um, because they really behave like puppies. And you know, they they can play underwater. They play to like catch your bubbles. It's super funny. You can see them like dancing underwater at night. It's quite amazing. Uh, they are extremely curious. Um, they will come and check you out and look at you because you look funny. They are really quite exceptional. I really like sea lions. They, they are quite um, quite amazing, actually. <laughs> to me, like, sea lions are really, really cool.
1: And I feel like the farther you go or the further you descend, the more you got to see. Is that true?
2: Not exactly. Uh, As I was telling you, uh, the the closest to the surface, the more you will see. Uh, The deeper you go, the less... you you see different animals, Um, but what people tend to want to see, which is colorful fish, big fish, big animals like dolphins and stuff, uh, these guys are close to the surface. Um, They are in the shallowest 20-25 meters. Um, When you go deeper, you can of course find animals, but uh, it's going to be different. And uh, also, going deeper is very difficult technically. Um, so, the reality is, in most areas of the world, you don't really need to go much deeper than 30 meters. You're going to be able to see any animal that you want. It's, yeah, I would say that in most cases, like, um, you don't really need to go so deep.
1: Have you ever seen any strange stuff, like artifacts? Because I was watching a video yesterday and that person, he even found some valley rings while doing metal detecting.
2: Oh, oh yeah, so you can find a lot of things uh, underwater. Doing a shipwreck, um, we can often found uh, bombs and uh, explosives. that of course you're not supposed to touch and you should not <laughs> right um it's a it's a very classic when you go uh diving Uh, warship so for example if you go there's a very very famous dive site in micronesia called a truck lagoon and when you go diving these places um it's known that they are like they are literally tanks and 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 live ammunition on the floor i mean it, it's been here for like 70 years uh, if you don't touch them, they have no reason to explode. But uh, it's too dangerous to remove them, so they are still here, basically. In caves in Mexico, I have seen bones of um, not not of humans. Um, these things tend to be removed from the cave, but like you would say, cows, uh, camels, uh, which is interesting. I had no idea that um in Mexico there there has been a time where there was camels. Um, but, um, yeah, so you, you can find like ancient bones, um, that I know friends who have seen like some saber tooth, uh, cats. Um, so it's, it's, you can find a whole lot of things underwater. Mm. And then I have found the usual like phones and, and like (laughs) all kinds of stuff that people forget underwater or drop.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, when do you usually dive? Like in the morning, in the afternoon, or in the evening?
2: All of them. <laughs> there's really, three. Really, uh, I'm not an, uh, somebody that wakes up very early, so uh, it's hard for me to go diving like at 8 a.m. or 6 a.m. in the morning. Um, but I have done all of them and they are quite amazing. I love diving at night. It's very, very different from uh, diving during day. But obviously, because it's, it's, it's completely black, um, uh, it changed completely your diving because now uh, you, you rely on your light to be able to see around you, to be able to, um, to communicate with your teammate underwater. Uh, but you see very different animals. For example, in Monterey, you can see octopus at night, uh, which are very, very difficult to see during day. Uh, there's a lot of animals hunting during night and, and colors. Uh, at night, um, uh, we we can use UV light, and and because a, a lot of animals are fluorescent, um, they they will be shining all sorts of very very fancy colors when you dive with UV lights, mm. and um, it's it's quite fascinating. I I really love, like diving at night. It's it's and it's very peaceful. Like you are in the water, floating floating on top of the water and looking at the stars, just before going underwater. You like rest on your back, look, talk to your friend and take five minutes looking at the sky, seeing the different stars and constellations. you going to be all right, I, I think I'm in the zone. We, we can go diving now. Everybody's ready. And, and you go diving and then you come back up and you see the stars again. And I'm sorry, there's just no better evening for me. <laughs> That's like the absolute best I can go for.
1: That's nice. Yeah, I never imagined like watching the sky from the sea.
2: Yeah, it's you floating just before going inside the ocean and and looking, you know, at at the sky, and it's quite amazing, especially if you're not freezing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So no, it's it's really cool. I have amazing memories of like, like no later than two weeks ago. Yeah, it was two weeks ago we have found a thunderback guitar fish. So it's something that I've never seen in my life. It looked like a big ray. And uh, it's a mix of a ray and a shark. And it's super, super cool. It's called a thunderback guitar fish. Uh, just the name, a guitar fish. I love it so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so cool. It was, it was just one of the peak moment and it was super rare to see one. And we have seen three massive ones, like a meter long in the same night. We have, three, we have seen three of them and, uh, plus sea lions, plus, four or five octopus that night that was quite a night like that was that was really really uh, really nice i went diving with two friends one of them is a youtuber actually and um that was really very really, uh, a good evening
1: so you'll never know what you're gonna find in the water
2: <laughs> that's part of the
1: excitement
2: if you know exactly what you're going to find this i think it would spoil me the moment you know it's kind of like turning around and seeing something that you did not expect no, that definitely plays a big role into like making the moment exciting, you know
1: So when you're diving, what's usually on your mind, or you just stop thinking
2: Ah, uh, a little bit of this to be honest um there's quite often a, a feeling of like amazement um it's you know, I feel. In a lot of ways, I don't feel this so much on ground, but when you're in the ocean, you feel small. You know, like you feel, wow, the ocean is so vast, it's so large, and I'm so small, <laughs> and I'm so tiny, tiny. And, and you see all the nature, and the nature has way more strength than you. Um, you know, in, in, in work, you can be successful. You can achieve a lot of stuff on ground. Like you can be, oh, I'm into weightlifting. I'm into, running a marathon and i'm into doing a lot of things but in the, the ocean if the ocean decides that you're going to have a bad day you're going to have a terrible day and there's nothing that you can do against it you know modern nature is very strong and and uh it's 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 quite amazing like uh, mind-blowing and the, the feeling of being in the water is extremely peaceful because it's very quiet um, you know we we say that um scuba diving is a, is a team sport for introverts mm. because we don't talk. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so you know it's a team sport we are together but we are together alone. You know it's kind of like we we definitely communicate but but you enjoy it with yourself, you know, like you don't have to to be communicating with other people. So so people who are like they don't want to be constantly chatting around or um and, and like to enjoy things by themselves, like, for example, reading a book or something. Scuba diving is very fulfilling because it's you and your mind, you know, like when you see something super cool, you're like, your mind explode. And, uh, <laughs> but it, it's, it's your own mind. It's not like your friends and something funny or something. Of course you have funny moments with your, with your mates. Um, but like definitely the feeling alone is, is kind of amazing to me. And I like, being a little bit uh, on these moments and it's very restful so um, and in a way you could say that you could even like for me it's close to be underwater meditation in in, in some places especially cave diving which is a, an environment which is in, in for a lot of people cave diving is very dangerous and for me it's the opposite because it's very small and very tiny and 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 in a way quite predictable because you don't have waves, things are fairly constant, they don't change too much, they do change, but not so much, has this very comforting feeling, like a big hug, you know and 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 it feels like underwater meditation where you you, you can almost close your eyes, don't do this in a cave, please, but you can almost close your eyes and uh and and enjoy the the, the peacefulness of 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 the environment around you. And uh, aside of this, being blown away by the the structure uh, that Mother Nature creates, you know, like the stalactites and the stalagmites, uh, the fossils that you see around, uh, the decorations inside. Of, it's it's quite mind blowing. And and being inside the Earth, and looking at all of these beautiful things, and being wow, that's you no, know, that that's quite a moment actually. <laughs> and and being one of the few people on earth being able to see this is is even it's beyond everything you know because first being able to see it is is amazing but knowing that probably less than a thousand people have been here and sometimes even being the first human being ever in history of mankind to be visiting these places and and like being a witness of this kind of environment, that is like mind blowing.
1: Yeah, very privileged.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know um, some researchers said scuba diving also can help people with certain health conditions.
2: Yeah, it helps a lot of people with uh, post-traumatic disorders, like PTSD's. Psychologists and psychiatrists have uh, treated a lot of uh, army people who came back like from very, very difficult situation to basically reconnect to the world in a way that is positive. And um, also people who have depression um, are often uh, offered to go scuba diving. And the reason is that in, in many many cases it's a very, very safe sport. And also one that is very rewarding because you know if you don't trust humans anymore so much, you can always find joy in in looking at the beauty of nature. And and also scuba diving is not a very difficult sport in in the beginning uh, of scuba diving. There are difficult stuff in scuba diving, but at the beginning it's a fairly easy sport to get into. Uh, which allows people that have problem with self-confidence, like, oh, I'm able to do something. Oh, I'm never going to be able to do something in like this to actually a- be able to do something with great success and, and building this, this path of success, basically, and proving to themselves that yes, they can do it. Yes, they can achieve something pretty great. And they don't need any assistant or something. And it's it has been helping a lot of people. Also, a lot of people who have disabilities, like a, a good friend of mine and mentor of, of mine is helping people have mother um, disabilities. So people who are in a wheelchair, for example, and they go cave diving. I have an immense respect for these people. Like cave diving is already difficult for ordinary people like you and me, who can stand up and walk. And these guys, they are not able to do this and they are cave diving and they are amazing underwater. And you're like, wow. <laughs> it's and I complained about little things. And these guys they go and they rock underwater. It's it's insane and and seeing them being able to enjoy and go over the difficulties that they have in life is I don't know how you can do better than this, like there's no more rewarding feeling than that. It's really amazing to have friends who allow people with disability to to live a better life and and allow themselves to to go beyond what society would put as limits for them, you know, like oh, you disabled you cannot do this or you should not be doing this and and actually no I'm my my disability doesn't define me I, I want to be able to enjoy my life the way that you do and um yes it's more risky but I accept the risk and 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 enjoy a full life and i i can't blame them for this really i i'm, I'm not <laughs> i can't do it
1: <laughs> yeah i feel in the water you are able to move more freely and also the buoyancy they compensate part of the gravity so yeah you just got more control of your body and can achieve something you can do like on the land
2: no that, that's absolutely right it's funny because at the same time you have more control because you have less of the limitations but at the same time you have less control because now you have to manage something that you are not wired in your brain to be managing which is buoyancy Your brain needs to adapt like breathing because your lungs expand is going to change your buoyancy. So if you breathe in, you're going to go up. And that's super weird at the beginning, (laughs) you know, like breathing is going to change the way it's going to affect the way that you float underwater. And, And it's relearning. It's like relearning to walk, but this time it's relearning how to be underwater. So yes, it's definitely being more free, you you have less of physical limitation, but at the same time, it feels a lot more difficult because it's kind of like learning to walk on Mars. It's it's a very different experience.
1: <laughs> I see. So, do you prefer to go solo and just get away from the civilization, or you usually find someone to die with you?
2: It Depends. It really depends on the type of diving that I'm doing and where I'm going. Being able to dive solo require a high level of uh, training uh, because you have to be comfortable solving any issue uh, that you may encounter. But at the same time, diving solo is also less safe. There's not a, there's not a second person that can help you in case you have a trouble. Um, and also, there's something that people don't value too much, but um, you don't have a second brain in the dive. You don't have somebody with critical thinking that is able to question your decisions. You don't have somebody that is able to give you a second option, you know, for example, getting lost underwater. You don't have someone who is like, no, the the way, the direction back to the shore or to the boat is that way. It's not the other way. So having a, as you would say, a backup brain underwater, um is very useful to you, so it's there are risk and benefits it's not that I prefer diving alone it's more in many situations um it's not always easy to find a competent diver that would be coming with you, and going with someone that is not as trained as you are um in a way can be more of a danger because for example when you go diving with an instructor the instructor is by themselves right you're not going to provide any assistant to the instructor you have no idea what you're doing <laughs> the instructor is not going to rely on you in case of trouble so the instructor is diving alone effectively and and because you don't know what you're doing the instructor is how ha- is now having more risk to themselves because first they have the risk to themselves that you can help but now they also need to manage your risk And because you are an inexperienced diver, your risk is pretty high because you might generate issues that you don't know how to solve. So it's a delicate balance, and it depends on the type of diving that you do. Um, So in places that I know very well, that I'm very comfortable, I have no problem going diving solo. Um, When I don't know the place very well, or when the dive is a little more difficult, I prefer um, going with someone that I know.
1: So, who is your best diving buddy? Um,
2: my best diving buddy? I have quite a few, but one that I really enjoy and I'm going very, very often diving with him is called Marceline Nebenhaus, and he is my scuba diving, cave diving mentor. He lives in Mexico. He is uh, a technical diving instructor uh, in Mexico and aside of being an amazing diver and a very smart guy. And it's quite amazing to, to spend some time with him. Uh, he's also someone who helped me grow as a diver. And, and if, I'm, if I'm here today, it's in big part because of him. Like i learned so much from this guy. And it, it's, it's, quite, um, it's quite amazing to be diving with this man. And I, I really enjoy it.
1: So you mentioned you also go cave diving, and I know it's more advanced and more challenging. But first, I have a question. So where um, are these caves usually located, and how are they formed?
2: So all over the world, really, you have caves more or less everywhere. So, for example, in the United States, you will find some caves in, um, uh, close to Las Vegas. Just to give you like there are a few of them uh, around that place, uh, but the, the biggest cave diving area in, in the United States is going to be north of Florida. Cave divers in, in, in Florida gave it the name of cave country, um, but you will also get the whole east coast of um, Central America uh like mexico for example the yucatan and the yucatan peninsula and uh quintanaro and you can go fairly south and you will find thousands of caves and in this area they tend to name them cenote which is basically a sinkhole in in the ground um so it's quite funny because these cenote are inside the jungle and and so you are literally diving under the jungle (laughs) like physically you're diving under the jungle so that's that's quite a, a funny uh fact then you have a ton of cave um in europe uh cave diving actually started in in the uk in england uh with a special type of cave diving that is called sump diving then you have a ton of caves in france in the southwest actually where i was born um close to Toulouse. Uh, it's really like the French cave country is actually where I was born. I never cave dived at that place, but um, it's really a, a very, very popular area for this. Uh, China actually has a very, very um, large amount of caves, very, very deep. China is actually loaded with caves. Uh, then you also have Thailand and Indonesia. and It's all over the world. And, and the reason is basically when it rains... Um, the water infiltrates the ground, and and because the water um, absorbs CO two in the atmosphere, it becomes mildly acidic, and and this acidity dissolves the the rocks uh, in the ground, and this specific rock that forms the caves is called limestone, and and basically the rainwater over million years uh, dissolves the water little by little and creates underground river. And when it becomes su- sufficiently large, it becomes a cave. And uh, basically, then you have the cycles of, uh, for example, the ice ages that were where the, the, the water level around the planet dropped down. And so this flooded cave become dry cave. And uh, so that's the reason why we can find like a large animal skeleton inside the cave is because at that time, of history, like 14,000 years ago, you could actually physically walk inside a cave because the cave were dry. And at the end of the ice age, something like, if I'm not incorrect, like 13,000 years ago, um, the clay flooded back up. So basically they were entirely protected for like 13,000 years. That's the process that that caves, most of the cave form. Uh, It's going to be a rainwater dissolving the limestone.
1: Yeah, because I watched some cave diving videos, and I saw they look like freezing waterfalls, which (laughs) looks amazing.
2: Yeah, it's uh, caves look completely different depending on the part of the world. And uh, a big factor uh, for the aspect of how caves look like is going to be water temperature. Um, So for example, in France, it's very, very cold. Uh, I mean, when I mean very cold, I mean about 10 degrees C, so something like 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And then you have the the cave in Mexico and in Florida, which are much warmer, uh, around 22, 24 degrees Celsius. And I'm not exactly sure how much it makes in Fahrenheit, maybe something like 80 Fahrenheit. Um, And then you have the amount of flow. Uh, So the amount of water that the cave is, um, is passing through. And and the more water that you have, the less, the more big the tunnel are going to be because obviously the more water, the more they basically bite into the rock. And and if you don't have a lot of water, uh, if you don't have a lot of flow, then the, the cave become more uh, delicate and you have more decorations. So for example, stalactite and stalagmite. So in Mexico, for example, the caves are a lot more decorated. In Florida, the caves are a lot more massive. Um, so it's a very, very different experience to be diving in different parts of the world.
1: And is it hard? Because I see like a lot of passages or tunnels, they look very cramped. And I feel if you move, you are very easily like bump into stuff.
2: Uh, it takes training, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's not an easy aspect of the sport. Um, Cave diving requires to be on top of your skills, uh, but at the same time, it's not impossible. I, I think that anyone who puts the effort, who wants to be doing cave diving, can be doing cave diving. Uh, I don't think that it's something like only an elite can be doing. I, I think that uh, uh, anyone who wants to put the effort and your dedication to learn how to scuba dive properly can learn, especially with things like sidemount today. Uh, even people with like mobility issues can, can learn cave diving because before, um, with twin sect back mounted, um uh, problem like shoulder problem would definitely limit you from going cave diving because you're not able to reach behind your back. Uh, but today with configuration like side mount, we are able even with people who have some sort of reduced mobility, uh, like for example, the disabled people that I was talking earlier about, you are able to go cave diving, so for now to me it, yes, it's a complicated it's a complicated part of the sport uh but it's achievable for anyone who wants to actually put the work and the dedication to learn anything, but you know, like any sport, like anything that you want to learn, like if you want to learn running, if you want to learn biking uh it doesn't come overnight right you you have to be running every single day, you have to be swimming every single day. And little by little, you improve and you're able to climb the Everest. But you don't wake up in one day and be like, hey, can I climb the Everest? The answer is no. But anyone who wants to be uh, doing these kind of things, um, I believe it's achievable by anyone. Now, is anyone interesting in doing this? The answer is probably no. <laughs> um, and anyone who wants to is probably able to be doing it.
1: I see. Have you ever panicked while diving?
2: no um i I think a very large amount i'm I put a lot of effort in my training, and the amount of effort that I put in my training allowed me to keep my control at all time and it's a very important part of scuba diving is if you start panicking. This, it's things are not going to end up nicely for you. And what I mean not nicely, could mean that you're going to die. Um, so being able to keep control and, and keep mental control on the situation at any time without losing grip on the situation, even when the situation is catastrophic, is going to be the difference between survival and major, major, major issue. Um, so you have to be mentally ready to be just whatever it takes, you have to keep control. Uh, but obviously, this kind of mindset is more important when you do activities like cave diving that are inherently more dangerous than if you just go diving from a boat uh, during your holidays where theoretically nothing can really happen. You know, uh, it's, it's a very safe activity. But when you go on the more difficult operations and and difficult type of diving like technical diving, like deep diving or okay or diving and now being able to assess and manage any sort of situation uh is going to be your life is going to depend on it so you you have to be able to keep control over it and uh we even have um A funny saying that is, is kind of funny when you compare it to, uh, work. People say, Oh, we, I am very good working under stress. You know, I have a lot of stress at work and I do very well working under stress. Scuba divers have a pun is that we work well under pressure because under pressure because of the water and underwater. There's a lot of ambient pressure. (laughs) So cave divers and, and scuba divers in general learn how to work under pressure in the literal and the uh, more image way of learning to work under pressure.
1: So in our earlier chat, you also mentioned diving satisfies your curiosity in science. So besides becoming like, more physically fit and more mentally disciplined, um, do you also become like more educated about the ocean, the earth?
2: I I think it's very difficult to go diving and pay no interest into what you're going to see. Um, So for example, um, I talked about seeing the Thunderback guitar fish, uh, on, on that night dive. And I had no idea what I was looking at. <laughs> and, 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 and when I get out of the water, I was like, did you see that thing? It was amazing. And now the next thing that you're going to be doing is I need to find a name of that animal. Like I need to put a name on that thing. And obviously we had no photos. So it was, it was not able to be going to like Google and be, Hey, I've seen that animal. Anyone knows what it is? And lucky for us, that specific night, a, dif- a second group of divers went diving at the same area and saw the same animal as us. And they were like, did you see the sun in the back guitar fish in the water? I was like, oh, that's the name it is. <laughs> okay, that's amazing. Thanks. And of course, also diving in the ocean, um, you're going to see all sorts of plastic pollution and these kind of things, which makes you very aware of... Um, like how much plastic is an issue and, and, you know, like starting to be a scuba diver, even if you care about it before, now you pay really attention when you go like, no plastic packaging and these kind of things, because you know, every single time you buy single use plastic, it's likely going to end up in the ocean and ruining one of the things that you enjoy the most in life, which is going in the ocean. And in a very selfish way, you're going to little by little shift your mindset and try to, to protect this very vast and beautiful ecosystem. And also you understand that, um, if, if the ocean suffer, humans are going to suffer because, because we fish because the ocean is actually the, the part of the world that sink a lot more of the CO2 in the world. Like the, the, the trees absorb far less CO2 than the algae is in the ocean. Um, so. If we, if we put problems in the ocean, the global warming is going to be much more of an issue than, um, than like burning forest. And burning forest is not good. So you can imagine how bad it's going to be. Aside of this, scuba diving is a lot of things in scuba diving are going to be, especially when you go a little deeper into scuba diving and not just going on holidays and going for a dive when you go like diving regularly. There's a lot of things about science. Like ecology, like marine biology, um, things like human biology. Like when you start doing technical diving, you learn about decompression theory. So you learn about how your body is going to absorb gas and release gas and how does your like decompression work? Um, and it's a very experimental science because it's, it's very difficult to. Um, to be uh, like measuring things in the human body. And it could also be fairly unethical if you think about it. Um, but it's it's quite a fascinating thing. There's a part of mathematics, which is a big thing for me. And and it's very scientific. You can also be part of uh, scientific expeditions answering very important questions for uh, science. Like, for example, one of my mentors... Um, and one of my first technical diving instructor, actually in Northern California, called Alberto Nava, um, uh, was a expedition leader for National Geographics and, uh, found in a cave dive in Mexico, the oldest skeleton in the American continent. And, um, and they were able to contribute to the history of how the humans conquered the American continent, like where did human came from? Did they came from the ocean? Did they came from, um, like the North Passage? So basically Siberia to, um, Alaska. And we're not talking about like recent history. We're talking about 13,000 years ago. It's, it's very, very old. Uh, so that's, that's like fascinating to be able to be part of this research project and, uh, When you, you, when you start to be good at diving, you, you, you are able to do a lot of things that are very good, not only for yourself, but for, for humanity, for science. Like there are, uh, organizations like in Northern California called Reef Check that are going basically to be checking, uh, the health of um, the ecosystems and the different species and counting how many uh, individuals you will see of that many fish of that many crabs to be able to assess basically the life of the reef um, in Northern California. And they are very, very big like communities um, doing this kind of thing. So regardless of your sensibility, there's always something that can be a research project where you can, where well, you can go to, you can go like doing wreck diving, like for example, Florida, it's a big thing, and you can study the wrecks. And there's there's really a lot of things that scuba diving opened the door to, and it's quite fascinating.
1: <laughs> so there are a lot of scientific divers there doing like research underwater. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in order to major in like marine biology or even archaeology, you need to learn to dive.
2: You don't have to. Uh, we collaborate with these people quite often. Um, like for instance, a dive shop in Mexico that I really like, called Under the Jungle, uh, collaborate with uh, universities in the United States to study the underground water system. Um, uh, in the Yucatan Peninsula, and and. And often these people are not divers, some of them are, but not all of them. And even if they are divers, maybe they're not trained to be doing that specific type of diving uh, because it could be too deep or in an environment that they don't know. And, and so divers have to collaborate uh, with scientific people to be able to basically divers go underwater and collect the data that they need for further analysis. So there's kind of this exchange and it's very interesting uh, as a dynamic and collaboration. We are the hands and the eyes of the scientific people. Even if ourselves, we don't really know exactly what we are supposed to be doing because it's marine biology and it's definitely not my field. But I'm able to go in places that they are not able to go. And so I'm definitely their hands... Like almost like a, a, a scuba diving puppet, you know, <laughs> I go, I do whatever they need to, and I bring it back and, and they can do the next part. And it's a collaboration, but like everything in science, right? Every, everybody has a role and we all contribute to a bigger scheme. So, yeah, that's, that's what it is. But it's, it's quite amazing. Like it's, it's, um, it's really amazing to be able to participate in all these different things.
1: Yeah, maybe you should talk to people who study the guitar fish.
2: <laughs> I, I love so much the name. I think the guitar fish. <laughs> has a, it's the best name ever for a fish, right? It's a, a, It would be horrible for the fish, obviously, but you can see yourself like playing the guitar fish. And, <laughs> and it's obviously something that you should not do. But like in your brain, when you hear a guitar fish, there's obviously something like this playing in your mind, like, you know, almost like a meme, uh, cartoon imaging. And that's definitely like, oh gosh, I love the name.
1: <laughs> yeah. So are there any dive sites on your bucket list? Like, where are you heading next?
2: Uh, The list would be very, very long, but I, I really want to go visit Thailand and Indonesia. It's, it's really two, two places that i I want to see, um, one day I also want to go to Micronesia uh, and diving in Lagoon, which is a, a very big site for wreck diving uh, but it can be fairly deep so I need to train a little more to be able to access these different dive sites but I really want to go to uh, Truk Lagoon uh, and then it's also like diving with specific people I made a lot of friends all over the world um, for example, I have a good friend in Germany called Anastasia. And we have a, a shared common interest for pandas. And I, I really want to go diving with her one day. And then uh, I have a colleague um, in the Netherlands, which I also really want to go diving with one day. And, and and you start to have all these people around the world that you connect on social media because you have this shared connection. and like oh we need to go diving let me know when you go let me know where you are i join you or if you want to go i i can host you you're welcome at my house and then we can go diving and it's quite amazing how you create this small community of people that are in a sense a bit like-minded um, we have a shared common interest and i also find that these people tend to be um very kind because it's hard to be fascinated by the ocean and animals and and be someone uh, a little harsh and a little bit of a pain to other people. It's It still exists, but um, you, you, you find very interesting people and very kind people in this environment, which is very, very nice.
0: Awesome.
1: Yeah, so you're a French guy living in the US. I'm wondering, like, When you first moved to the United States, what are the few things you noticed that are very different from what you experienced in France? Food!
2: (laughs) Food! (laughs) As a French guy, the answer is going to be straight. It's food. Also, the French community is very small. um, So it's not so simple to find, like... For example, you, in the Bay Area, in California, you can find in, Indian food and Asian food everywhere, right? Uh, but finding French food is a lot more difficult. And even if you do, most of the time it's something like an advertisement, but it's not really French and it doesn't taste good. <laughs> so, yeah, food was the biggest thing. On the more society level thing, the biggest shock was probably how individualistic the society is in the United States. Like for me, the way that the healthcare system works is like breaking my mind. I just don't understand it. Um, Or the fact that people can go in debt for like $200,000 just to get a master's. It breaks my mind. I don't understand how it's possible. Like it's on a different planet. I, I, I don't understand how education can be so expensive how people accept that education can be so expensive. And in the same way, how can people accept a healthcare system that is first the most expensive in the world and also some of the least efficient of what we call Western world. It's it's really blowing my mind. So yeah, food and, and that.
1: <laughs> Are there any like stereotypes about French people that really bother you? Or you're just disagree
2: with? Uh, no. No, I think there's one that I really agree with, actually.
1: <laughs> Which one?
2: French people complain all the time. That is true. <laughs> we do complain all the time.
1: <laughs>
2: and I, I think it's a very cathartic situation, you know? it's French people complain and feel good because they complain. You know? Oh, this is not good. And, and we are very vocal about, you know, like with this, this stereotype of people being on strike, all the time in France, and, and I think that, that's very French, like it's impossible, and, and I really realized how French it was by leaving France, um, I realized that, yes, we complain all the time, but you know what, I love it, <laughs> we complain and we never settle for less, that is great, I love it, but yes, we are big complainers, <laughs> I think that's probably the most true, stereotype about French people um, is how much we complain. And, yeah.
1: <laughs> and do you guys fight for that? Oh, uh, personally, no.
2: Um, I, I, I think we are very ironic people. Like The French sense of humor is very ironic or absurd. And so, French people tend to be the first one to mock French people. So, you know, it's, it's hard to be Worse than ourselves about French people, because the one that are the most critical about French is going to be French, right? <laughs> because we like to criticize, including ourselves. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not bothered by it. I, I think it's a, it's a very funny fact about French people, and I feel very great about it.
1: And another thing is that I think a lot of people when they're when they think of France, they actually are thinking of Paris. But I know France definitely has much more than Paris to offer.
2: It's like thinking that the United States is New York. Um, or, like, or like China is Shanghai or, or Beijing. Uh, it's, it's going to be the same. as Or like Russia is Moscow or uh, Mexico is Cancun. Um, it's, obviously, that's not right. Some of the things in these cities are going to be true uh, for for the whole country um, But obviously not the whole United States is New York, right? And, and as with every stereotypes, some of them are true, some of them are less true, and some of them are completely wrong Yeah, it's like I, I don't think that many of the New York stereotypes apply to Tennessee in the same way that I, I don't think that a lot of stereotypes of Paris apply to my hometown because it's, it's a very small place, so <laughs> it's, it's fairly unlikely. But yeah, but as, as a general thing, um, there are stereotypes that apply to, to a culture, right? Like, for example, the fact that French people like to complain. Um, it's not specific to Paris, it's more going to be cultural uh, in, the, in the same way, like uh, you would say, maybe in Japan, it's not very well seen to be disagreeing publicly. Yeah, that's probably not only <laughs> Tokyo, right? It's, it's probably more going to be cultural-wide.
1: By the way, which city are you from?
2: So I'm from the southeast of Toulouse, uh, which is uh, very close to Bordeaux if you like wine. <laughs> it's the southwest of France.
1: Is it very different from Paris?
2: Yeah, yeah, very different. Um, France has very strong identities depending on geographical regions. And, and the reason is that France is kind of an, right in the middle of Western Europe. So if you go to the north of France, people are very close to German mentality, more close to that. If you go to South, on the west we have Spain, and on the east we have Italy. So obviously being so close to different countries is going to massively influence the way that people think and the way that people behave. Um, and even it influenced the, the words that you're going to be using, right? And for a long time, France had a lot of local languages that were actually inspired by Spanish or by Italian or by German, uh, depending on where you are in, in France. And it's, it's very interesting because the food is completely different depending on where you are in France. Like if you go to Switzerland, you're very close to the Switzerland border, like skiing in the Alps. You have a lot of very um, cheesy kind of food that is very, very close to Switzerland. And then you go to Southeast, like the French Riviera, and you will find a lot of closely related food to Italy. And then you go to my home place and you find a lot of things close to Spain. Um, so it's, it very depends um, geographically. And also the climate varies a lot between north and south, um, which gives us actually this wide range of different wines that we have in France uh, because the, the, the climate is so different that you end up with completely different wines.
1: So, what food are you missing the most? Oh, cheese.
2: <laughs> I can't wait to have a good piece of cheese.
1: So, you don't like American cheese?
2: Ah, uh, no. <laughs> they are good,
1: good ones.
2: They uh. are good ones. But um, a lot of the good cheese in France are illegal in the United States uh, because they are not pasteurized. Oh. Um, uh, so, the problem is. Because they are not legal, you can't even produce them or import them. Uh, the problem is the pasteurization process removes a lot of the taste of the cheese. Yeah, it feels a little different. <laughs> Some of them are pretty good and I like for example uh, jack cheese, it's pretty good. Or pepper jack, it's pretty cool. But I, I miss them, the good taste of a blue cheese. <laughs> you know. You know there's a couple of cheese in France where we have a joke like kiss your wife one last time before biting in that cheese because you're not going to be ever able to do it again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I see. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I-, I know you're a big fan of pandas. So what is a big deal about them?
2: Oh, um so when I was a kid, my dad was like you're some kind of um a bear, um, you know, I, apparently I was behaving a little like a bear, and and the big question for a couple of years was what kind of bear, is it like uh, a mountain bear, you know, like a brown bear, is it a polar bear, is it a panda bear, and it uh, turned out that apparently, uh, given my personality, I'm a panda bear because I love hugs, I love food, I'm annoying, I'm cuddly. And I'm very, very clumsy. I break everything I touch. And apparently, just like pandas. <laughs> and so the pandas became like my nickname. It's like, hey, panda, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. And, and also, I like, I, I like them. I think they are very fluffy and cute. They are adorable. And uh, later on, because my name is John, or Jonathan, and there are Johns everywhere, especially in the United States. <laughs> It's more easy, like when you want to put your name on something, you know, to just use Panda, because there's John's everywhere. There's only one Panda. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's just more easy to start putting your name as being Panda than being John. And it's the same like, hey, where have you been last night? Oh, I was with John. With John. Oh, I was with Panda. Oh, that Panda. Okay, that works. And and everybody knows who you talk about. So my friends started to call me Panda because it was more easy. And, to be honest, I like it, so it's stayed.
1: Yeah, I feel pandas are just very special, so their eyes are different, and also I think their diets are different, because I can't think of any other animals who also eat bamboo.
2: Oh, the red panda, actually. Uh, So they are called panda, but they are not panda, they are actually fox. Uh, So in in, in the US, for example, people call them Firefox, you know, like the browser, actually. The Firefox um, is actually the, the, one of the names of the Firefox is Red Panda. It's absolutely adorable. It's so cute and they eat bamboo. Hmm.
1: Yeah. And also for this year's Winter Olympic, um, we also picked Panda for the mascot.
2: I know all my friends started to send me videos and it's like,
1: John, did you see the Panda is the mascot of the Olympic Games?
2: I was like, what else? What else, you know? The most lazy animals to represent extreme sport, of course.
0: (laughs) Hey, thank you for listening. If you like our episodes, subscribe to Dedicated on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to follow us on socials, you can find us at DedicatedFM on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to contact us, Our email is dedicatedfm2022 at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy.
2: And if your followers want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at the scuba panda.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that actually summarizes our conversation.
2: (laughs) Exactly, I'm the scuba panda. (laughs)